Okay, we've looked at the first implication of this period of time is the weakness of human kings. Now, prophets had a very important role in this period of time. And I want to give you kind of an overview of what God is doing with prophets. But in this period of time, God raises up uh, kind of an entire school, if you will, or kind of a whole group of prophets during the period of time of Israel's decline. And just a reminder here, let's take a quick look at this new covenant. We've talked about the Noahic, we've talked about the Abrahamic, and the three elements to it, the seed, the land, and the blessing. And we've also looked at the Mosaic Covenant, which is Israel's constitution. It is conditional, as we've seen. And the Abrahamic is unconditional, Noahic is unconditional. These three aspects are going to be expanded. Uh, we mentioned the Palestinian, which deals with the land. That one has provisions that are unconditional in that Israel will ultimately and finally be in the land in security and never to be displaced. That won't happen to the Millennial Kingdom. But it also has conditional aspects in that Israel can be cast out of the land if they violate the Mosaic Covenant. And if they violate it, they were cast out. That's what we're looking at in this period of destruction. And they also lost the land in 70 A.D. when they rejected their Messiah. And it's only been recently, since 1948, that they have reestablished themselves in the land. So that's the Palestinian. We also, last time, looked at the Davidic covenant, which gives more detail concerning the seed aspect, in that the seed is going to go through kings, and they're going to go through David. And remember, it also mentions there's going to be discipline for those kings as well. So that remains one element of the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing aspect, and that is the new covenant. So let's turn and look briefly at it. We don't have a lot of time to develop it in detail. Turn to Jeremiah 31, and let's read just a few verses to get a feel for this new covenant. And this is the last covenant of the Old Testament. We call it the new covenant. And let's read... Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 27. Okay, why don't you read? 31, Jeremiah 31, 27. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. Keep reading. As I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster. Okay, that's what we're looking at, the destruction, the disaster part. Keep reading. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Okay, there's a future for Israel. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Okay, so now let's go back. Well, yeah, let's go back to Connie. This kind of gives you a hint that God is going to move in the future. Israel, even though destroyed, even though going into captivity, from the human perspective, it's over, it's done, and there's nothing they can do about it. 
And humanly speaking, there's nothing they can do to restore themselves. So it's going to take God, by his sovereign grace, to intervene to work a work himself. Read verse 31, Connie. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. There it is. A new covenant. Who is it with? Who are the parties of the covenant? Okay, God. And notice it says Israel. That's the ten tribes to the north. And Judah, the two tribes to the south. And the reason it speaks of both of them, because they're divided. Remember? So we have the parties to the covenant. It would be God and Judah and Israel. Just like Connie said. Let's uh, read on, because it uh, adds a few things in terms of what's going to be involved in this covenant. Well, first of all, let, let's backtrack a little bit. Let's read 23. And how long don't you read 23 and 24? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Once again they will speak this word in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. Notice that? When I restore their fortunes. Jeremiah is writing to them. Some portions of Jeremiah are written as they're going into captivity, and some of Jeremiah is written after they are already there. So he's speaking of restoration. Keep reading. The Lord bless you, O abode of righteousness, O holy hill. Judah and all its cities will dwell together in it, the former and they who go about with flocks. Okay. There's going to be a restoration, a regathering. Now let's skip, uh, you want to read verse 32 and 33. Not like the covenant that I made with the fathers of the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land. My covenant that they broke, though I was, though I was their husband to Christ the Lord. Okay, stop there for a minute. What is he referring to there? The covenant, what? Makes it crystal clear what covenant he's referring to there. That's the Mosaic covenant. This is the covenant that he made when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And if that's not clear enough, the covenant which they broke, even though God acted as a husband to them, they were like an unfaithful wife. Okay, now read verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Okay, what does that speak of in one word, if you can? National regeneration. Regeneration. Indwelling of the Word of God, a turning, a new heart. And it's dealing with, remember, the parties. It's not talking about individual salvation. It's talking about a national regathering, a regeneration here. So national regeneration, and if you would read 36 and 37, it's going to speak again of world dominance. You want to get that, Mark, 36, 37? These are the stipulations, by the way. A regathering, national regeneration, and read 36, 37. If this fixed order departs from me, for me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease being a nation forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declared the Lord. That is a significant statement. I don't know how to emphasize it. You know what he's saying there? Summarize what he's saying there. He's basically saying 
as sure as the natural realm functions, basically. In other words, as sure as are the laws of nature, if you will, as sure as is the established order, what is he referring to in that? That's the Noahic covenant. In other words, if the laws of nature should suddenly disassociate themselves or fall apart, then what would God do? Then he would reject Israel. So he is saying that he's not going to reject Israel, that he's going to stick with Israel as solid as the natural realm, and everybody expects the sun to rise tomorrow, everybody expects the laws of nature, you expect gravity. You, you okay, so this is a promise that he's not going to suddenly change the geographical, I mean the gravitation constant. At least till a later period of time, yes. Yeah. So what what that really means in terms of uh, what he's saying here, that Israel is going to remain. They will remain. And we have other revelation that tells us that they will also be dominant in the world. They will be that kingdom that God ultimately designed. That's future. And the nature of this, it's unconditional. And the sign of it is the blood of the Messiah. And we don't learn that till we get to the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 11, 25 seems to indicate that. So you might just jot that down. We won't look it up for the sake of time. So this is the New Covenant. Now, if we had more time, <clears throat> let me just real briefly, but there's a lot of detail that the book of Hebrews gives in that you and I are benefiting right now from this covenant, the New Covenant. The church benefits from the new covenant. Hebrews 8 makes that clear. Jesus in the upper room introduced and inaugurated the new covenant. Did he inaugurate it with the church? There was no church. Very good. Church did not exist. Who was in the upper room? Jewish disciples. And he inaugurates them with Jewish disciples. And basically, when he says, uh, my body and my blood are basically the blood of the covenant. Remember what he said in the upper room. So he's inaugurating it. But is the church parties to the covenant? We are not parties to the covenant. So, But somehow we're going to benefit from it. Ultimately, the parties of the covenant, God will in fact institute the new covenant with Judah and Israel, and they will be together. They will be a united kingdom again, I guess you could say. Actually, I think it's going to begin during the seven-year tribulation period. Let me finish very briefly how we are related to the new covenant. We are not parties to the covenant, but we benefit from the covenant in the same way, are we benefiting from the Abrahamic covenant? Yes. Remember, when we looked at the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant specifies that Israel will be a blessing to the nations. We benefit from the new covenant in that we are receiving those blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. And the blessing aspect through Christ, look up Galatians 3, let me remind you, we, we looked at this passage, it's in Christ that we enjoy the benefits of the Abrahamic covenant, we're not parties of the Abrahamic covenant either, but we benefit from it, because we're related to the way that God is 
blessing through Israel. He's blessing through Israel, through Israel's Messiah. And because we know Israel's Messiah, we benefit from that blessing. The blessing of the new covenant, that's how we benefit, is through our relationship to Messiah. And he's allowed us to experience some of the aspects in terms of individual regeneration. Also, there's some other aspects of it, including a outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel speaks of that. That's part of the New Covenant. Ezekiel talks about the New Covenant. He talks about indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have that indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is a provision of the New Covenant. We benefit not by being parties, but we benefit because we know Israel's Messiah. And through Israel's Messiah, we get the blessing of the Abrahamic Covenant, and we benefit from the blessings of the New Covenant, which is part of the Abrahamic Covenant. Does that make sense? The reason I say all of this is because there's going to be a future time when God fulfills the new covenant with the parties of the covenant. The legal parties, the ones that are written in the contract. That will not take place till the great tribulation. And I think God will begin to effect that and the full benefits of that they'll receive in the millennial kingdom. We have a foretaste of what Israel will receive in the future. So God's not done with Israel yet. So let's take a look more specifically at the role of the prophets in all of this. And by the way, it's the prophets that reveal this new covenant. It's Jeremiah. It's Ezekiel. It's Joel that tell us, Joel tells us about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Peter quotes Joel in Acts chapter 2 and interprets Pentecost. It is a partial fulfillment of Pentecost. It's the prophets that proclaim God's word, number one. That's their main function. They proclaim God's word in the time in which they lived, and some of them in scripturated scripture. They proclaim God's word. We saw also they functioned as those that anointed, but they also judged kings. Now, by judging is, what I mean by that is they pronounced condemnation on them. And, for example, David, Nathan pointed out David's sin, if you remember that. But Samuel anointed Saul. He anointed David. Nathan, another prophet, uh, anointed uh, Solomon. Is that correct, I think? So they anointed, but they also judged kings and... They actually judge kings in the writing of those historical books in, as well. They sometimes predict outcomes there. Not only did they proclaim God's word, but they're writers of scripture. Writers of scripture. Moses proclaimed God's word and the law is written by Moses, a prophet. So the first five books are, prof- are prophetic in that historical sense. It's Moses that writes them. You can even say Joshua, you could say Judges, you could say 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, these, these are written by historical prophets. They are the interpreters and the proclaimers of God's word. And certainly the prophets are the ones that write Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, all the 12, uh, 12 minor prophets. That's one of their main functions. Scripture comes through the prophets. Similarly in the New Testament, it's prophets that write the New Testament. These are New Testament prophets. 
And this is very important. They enforced the covenants. We've been stressing covenants. This is one of their main functions. They were enforcers of God's covenants. And by enforcing God's covenants, one thing they did is they showed that God is faithful in history. So God's faithfulness in history. God honors his part of the covenant. And in fact, when he intervenes to discipline, that's part of what is in the covenant, part of the Davidic covenant. So if God didn't discipline Israel, he would have been violating his very own covenant. So he must discipline. This is one of the main things that the Bible, from start to finish, shows, is that God is faithful in history. And there's a real practical application we can draw in that we can trust God. Faith is very important in not only Old Testament, but in Christian law. And we have every reason to trust God. He's demonstrated throughout history. He has never violated a covenant. He has never failed in fulfilling what he has said he was going to do. Now, there's some promises that are yet future that he hasn't fulfilled yet, but of the things that have transpired, he has never been unfaithful. In that... One of the ways he enforces, he acts as God's prosecuting attorney. And we'll use that analogy. What does a prosecuting attorney do? He stands in court, let's think just in our culture. What does a prosecuting attorney do? He's the one who takes the voice of the law. Okay, of the law or the state or the, the one that is abused. And he, what does he do with, uh, he argues for conviction of the one that has violated the law. And since God has a law, and since God has given covenants, they act as prosecuting attorneys. And what does the prosecuting attorney do? I gave you a little bit of an introduction to this. You remember the Hebrew word? You guys can pronounce it. Reeve. Reeve. This is like an R sound. This dot and this yud are like an I sound, and this is like a B sound. And in Hebrew, you sometimes pronounce the B like a V. So, reeb or reeb, not rib. <laughs> reeb. Okay? And remember I mentioned what a reeb is, the meaning of it, it's a legal case. It's a lawsuit. That's the meaning of the word reeb. It's a legal case that you could bring it in a courtroom. Except when we're speaking in terms of what the prophets do, we're talking about a bigger courtroom. We're not talking about just something down, you know, downtown in Bernalillo County Courthouse. We're talking about universal court here. We're talking about before God himself. And they're acting like in this big courtroom, like prosecuting attorneys. And what they are doing is they are bringing the legal case against the violators of the covenant, who is Israel and or Judah, after the divided kingdom. The elements of the case, the legal case or the lawsuit, is the prophet's call on witnesses. Just like a prosecuting attorney would bring evidence against the one that is convicted and bring witnesses. In other words, who has observed crime? Bring them in, let them testify. That's the same as being an advisor, right, the attorney? Because they did advise the king when they were wrong or they were asked. Yeah, they, 
Yeah, they call they them counselors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they had various functions, but we're talking primarily here of prosecuting attorney functions. So they call on witnesses. They bring an indictment. In other words, these are the things that you have violated in the covenant. And another thing they do is they pronounce judgment. So this would be like David. Yes. Yes. An indictment and then the judgment. And Nathan, in fact, did condemn David and even pronounced some consequences. Those are the elements. Here are some clear examples in scriptures. We looked at the Micah 6 passage. We didn't read all of them. But this is a clear reeve proceeding. Micah 6, 1 through 15. Isaiah 1, 2 through 25. This is how Isaiah begins his book. And it's somewhat of an introduction to the whole book. The whole book is like an expansion of this court proceeding. And we have another clear example in Hosea 4, 1 through 3. Let's go back to the Micah passage real quickly. And let me remind you of what we said there. That's probably the clearest one of the three. Somebody else look up the Isaiah one. We'll just read it real quickly. But let's... See, where did we leave off? Look up the Micah one, Randy, and we'll have Loretta look up the Isaiah one. The Isaiah one. Okay, start reading, Randy. Here you know what the Lord says. Okay, listen to what the Lord says. The prophets are not bringing this case out of the blue. They're, they're not doing it on their own. This is what the Lord says. This is a case that God brings. He is using them as prosecuting attorneys. They're his spokesmen. Keep reading. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Who are they? The hills, the mountains. Witnesses. In other words, all of creation knows what Israel has done. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. The New, New American Standard translates, Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord. Indictment. Read it again. Hear ye, O mouth, the Lord's controversy and the strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with people and he with Israel. Okay, see the word controversy? The Lord has a reap. The Lord has a case. The Lord is bringing a lawsuit. There's the word. And we saw the indictment. Keep reading. O my people, what have I done unto you? And wherein have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. There's Egypt again. Keep reading. And redeem you out of the house of servants. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and... In other words, they have no basis. God has been faithful. But they have violated his covenant. Keep reading. O my people, remember now what Balaam, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Okay, the righteous acts of the Lord. And if you read on, basically it just gives more detail... But what I wanted to know, you to notice there at the beginning, Arive, God, God has a case against you, and Micah is going to bring that case. Uh, read real quickly Isaiah 1, 2 there. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, the Lord speaks. Heavens and earth, he's calling on the witnesses. Keep reading. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master. Manager, but Israel does not know my people. Do not understand. Last simple nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring, evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Okay, there's the case. 
And he's bringing, uh, I think if you read on into there, I think he uses the word reap somewhere in there. And they violated the covenant, essentially. And Isaiah is bringing the case against them. So, they're God's prosecuting attorney. And and by the way, you could view the, the aspect that we looked at before on this chart here, when it shows God's faithfulness, how are they acting in that capacity of showing God's faithfulness? Not only as prosecuting attorneys, but as what kind of attorneys in terms of God? Defense attorneys. The prophets act as defense attorneys in demonstrating God's faithfulness. God keeps his part of the covenant. So they are defense attorneys, and they also are prosecuting attorneys in bringing a case against the nation. And then fifthly, there's always grace, there's always hope, there's always a future. It's these prophets that predict a future messianic kingdom, and the ones that are the clearest are the ones that are speaking during the darkest time of Israel. And they predict that Messiah will come, and Messiah will bring a regathering. Messiah will bring regeneration. Messiah will establish the kingdom that has now been destroyed, and it will be a glorious king. And the prophets continually predict a messianic kingdom in the future. So those are the main functions or main role of prophets. They proclaim God's word to that generation, Secondly, they anointed and judged the kings of their generation. They enforced the covenants, and they enforced covenants by acting as defense attorneys, showing God's faithfulness in history. Secondly, they acted as prosecuting attorneys in showing that Israel is guilty by by virtue of their violation of the, the covenants. And they also predict a future messianic kingdom. That's the role of the prophets of the Old Testament and their main function. So God spoke to them ahead of time of the second of the It's not clear how it happened. In most of the cases, it almost seemed like God would give them the thoughts and they would just speak it out, kind of simultaneous. They would re- receive revelation and communicate it. There are some examples of exactly what you said, in that God would announce to them, go tell David such and such. But in a lot of occasions, it seems like they just, God would reveal in their minds. So we've looked at the united kingdom. This is the high point of all of Israel's history. We saw the beginning of the unraveling of that kingdom when the kingdom is divided and it goes downward until one of the portions of the kingdom is destroyed, the northern Kingdom, So that leaves the southern kingdom as a surviving kingdom. That's 2 Kings 18 to the end of the uh, 2 Kings. The divided kingdom is 1 Kings 12 to 2 Kings 17. And after the destruction of the kingdom, the kingdom is disciplined, the disciplined kingdom in exile. The exile is a discipline. And we have notations of it in 2 Kings but Daniel and Ezekiel write during that period of time. And they give us some insight. Uh, Daniel was in Babylon. He was one of the captives. And he's one of the bright spots in terms of Israel. And that he was prophet, statesman, a man of God, 
Ezekiel being a prophet, part of Ezekiel also speaking, warning concerning captivity, and then he also writes during the time of the captivity, some of his prophecies. So let's take a look in the time that we have remaining at this period of exile, 70 year period, and see what God is doing. First of all, what it is, it's part of this destruction of the kingdom. And what God is doing is he's transferring political supremacy from Israel to whom? Assyria. The Gentiles in, in general, or the nations, yeah. And specifically Assyria, but then a Babylon, and then it'll progress to others. In fact, this period of time, this transfer of political supremacy actually runs even into the time in which we live in. I'm going to show you that on a chart here. So the period in which we live in would fall under a period of time where God has transferred political supremacy to Gentiles. And the dates for that, in 605 we have the beginning of the exile where some of the choice young people were taken into exile, Daniel being included, where Nebuchadnezzar takes them into Babylon. Alva McLean also says about this period of time, he says, during that long period, the power and authority of the theocracy, and what he means by that, God ruling on earth through his kingdom, through Israel. So he says, the authority of theocracy was never in question. No nation, regardless of its size or strength, could stand successfully against Israel as long as that people followed the will of its divine king. And that was true during uh, David and Solomon. Israel went down in defeat only when she turned aside from the divinely written charter of her kingdom. That's the covenant. And that's just what we read. That's what happened. Alba McLean. He also says, in terms of the end, which we have the end of the dynasty through Solomon. Not the ultimate end, but the ultimate in terms of Israel being prominent, because ultimately the line will continue until the king, the Messiah. Albert McLean says the following, concerning this period. In Jehoiakim, the failure of the family of Solomon became complete, and, and no man of his seed shall ever again sit on the throne of David as a matter of historical fact. Jehoiakim was not childless, although the text says so, and he's going to explain this. After being carried away into Babylon, he had a son through whom the family line finally culminated in Joseph. This is Joseph and Mary, the husband of the Virgin Mary. But our Lord Jesus Christ was not of the seed of Joseph. He was the seed of Mary, who was descended from David through Nathan, not through Solomon. Hence, it is correct to say that Jehoiakim was to be written childless in the text in the genealogical register of the royal family line. Make sense? So we have an end to the dynasty through Solomon, but not an end through the Davidic dynasty. And that's what the Davidic covenant assures us. The Davidic line will continue. A third thing that happened 
is the departure of the Shekinah glory. In other words, God leaves not only the temple. God's visible presence leaves the temple. Ezekiel portrays that. In fact, let's look at that. Would somebody look up Ezekiel? Begins in, in Ezekiel 8, but for the sake of time, skip to the final departure in chapter 11. But for your notes, the Shekinah glory begins to leave in chapter 8. So read chapter 8, first 18 verses. And there's a mention, there's a movement at the, to the threshold of the temple in nine, chapter 9, verse 3. Jot that down. The Shekinah glory shines into the courtyard in chapter 10, verse 4. And then we have in 11.23, kind of the final departure. And that's what Connie's going to read. The glory of the Lord went up from in the city and stopped above the mountains. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exile of the Okay, so Jeremiah has this vision, and this is what he says. So, the departure of the glory. The, he saw a vision of the glory leaving the city. That's the end of Israel. So, let's look at some results of the exile. And these results are very, very interesting. The most obvious, obviously, and the first thing is the destruction of God's kingdom. That earthly manifestation through the nation of Israel, that's the only part, Ultimately, God's kingdom is never destroyed because God is always sovereign. But what we're talking about here is the destruction of that earthly kingdom. Secondly, Israel is purged of idolatry. They don't have a problem with idolatry in later history. They had a problem even right after they left Egypt all the way to the destruction of the kingdom. In fact, the kingdom was destroyed because of idolatry. They were cured of that. The discipline was effective in terms of idolatry. Thirdly, and this is what I was alluding to earlier, is started what uh, Jesus describes as the times of the Gentiles. little phrase there. The times of the Gentiles. There's a shift in world history here. And it begins with the exile. God intended to use the nation of Israel as a theocracy where he would rule through his delegated nation, delegated authority through the nation, that is interrupted and God introduces a times when Gentiles will dominate. And ever since that period of time, Gentile kingdoms have dominated world history. See what I mean? The Bible gives us world history here. It's the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. So right around that 605 period of time, we have the rise of Babylon, and Babylon takes the nation of Israel into captivity. What happens to Babylon? Like Linda says, they got eaten up by M&P, Medo-Persia. Remember that? In fact, Daniel in Babylon predicts all of this world history. He predicts the rest of world history. So if you were living in the time of Daniel, you could have known the rest of world history. And what happens to the Medo-Persians? Who were they eaten up by? No. Greece. Remember Alexander the Great? Yeah. All right. So we have Babylon, we have Medo-Persia. These have been the dominant forces and kingdoms of the world since the exile. 
And what happened to Greece? Okay, we have Rome. All right. And this is the time frame where Messiah came. And we'll talk about more about that next next week, Lord willing. And then, yeah, and then as Linda says, there's kind of a... Otherwise, I'd have to extend my chart off onto the wall there. So there's going to be a period of time after the first century, the period in which we are living in, and Israel is not dominant, and the Bible predicts what? In that same vision that Connie was alluding to, uh, the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw. Something of a new Roman or a revived Roman Empire, so all represented with the same color here, that's at the end of the age. And they will be dominant in that final seven-year period. So, we have Gentile empires, Gentile rulership, and if you look at the specific words, this is the Hebrew word, and all of you can pronounce that, right? Very good. Goyim. Yeah, you got it. Did you get it, Connie? Yeah. See, that's a G, that little G with a little dot there, and this is an O. The dot up here is an O. Remember, you ought to remember this in Reeve, the dot and the Yud. So it's Goyim. This is an M. And an Im in Hebrew, you've already learned this. Plural, so that means more than one. And it can be translated Gentiles. And also it can be translated nations. It refers to nations. And correspondingly in Greek, all of you can pronounce that one. What's that? No, that's an N. That's like an N. Ethnos. Ethnos. Where we get the word ethnic or ethnology or those sort of things. It's the identical meaning as the Old Testament goyim. It's Gentiles or nations. Nations have an important part in the plan of God. One more chart, kind of a summary of biblical history. From beginning, in the beginning, in other words, from eternity past to eternity future, we have the origin of Israel. That's what we've looked at. That's essentially the book of Genesis. We looked at the emerging of Israel. That's Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges. And then we had the kingdom of Israel. That begins First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. I don't have the destruction, but the destruction takes place, and we'll have a regathering. But we have a times of the Gentiles that begins with the destruction of Israel, and that will extend all the way to this arrow that is pointing down right there, and that arrow represents what? Second coming of Christ. We are living in the times of the Gentiles, where Gentile nations and kingdoms are dominant. And Israel is kind of on the sideline. Beginning with the end of the times of the Gentiles, in that seven-year period of time, God is going to raise up Israel again. And Israel will be prominent in the kingdom. And this is the ultimate and future kingdom. That's world history. That's where world history is hidden. Look all this up in your UNM world history book and see if it elaborates on it for more detail. And we came to the point last time where I was going to give you the foundation of the nations that we've looked at portions of before. And we said, number one, it's rooted in God's purposes. Nations don't come about as a result of evolution. 
And the, the purposes of God go all the way back even to Genesis 1 where God intended man to rule. And one of the ways that man rules on the earth is through government and through entities that uh, he designed actually in terms of nations. We also said that the nations actually came about as a result of God's judgment. That's at Babel, where God scattered the peoples. God intended that they do it voluntarily, and they did the very opposite. They gathered together to make a name for themselves, built a tower, and basically did the very opposite of what God intended as revealed to Noah, and initially revealed to Adam. So nations don't come about as man as man designs them or man structures them, but uh, as a result of God's judgment, and then they persist over time because God has a plan. Thirdly, and this is where we left off, uh, they are under the sovereign control of God himself, under God's sovereignty. So they will not go beyond any boundaries that God has set for the nations. They're not independent. In other words, leaders may think that they can do whatever they want to, particularly totalitarians, and even some that are not so totalitarian sometimes think that they are independent and they are the last word, but they don't realize the concept of God sovereignly working behind the scenes, and he can use circumstances to redirect even decisions that are made. And that's where we left off. We also know, fourthly, that uh, the purpose of nations, this is from the Acts 17 passage that we looked at a couple of times, the purpose that God has established national entities is in unique ways related to ethnicity and cultures. God has designed that in that context people can seek him. They have opportunity to seek him. So there's never autonomy or there's never people outside of God's reach and God's availability if they seek after him. So this is an interesting purpose that political scientists, historians kind of overlook the divine purpose. And we get that from scripture. That's what the, that's why the Bible is the foundation for these things. Fifthly, we know from the Abrahamic covenant that God will bless the nations dependent on how they treat Israel. That's part of God's covenant with Israel. So they're blessed through the nation of Israel, not as a result of their efforts, not as a result of materialism or prosperity or things that they devise, but based on their treatment of Israel, which our country, we're in a very precarious situation with the leadership that we have now. Or the leadership of our country is basically rejecting Israel. And there's consequences based on Abrahamic covenant. Number six, another thing that God does with the nations, another purpose or design for the nations, is they are for the discipline of Israel, and God will use them and has used the nations throughout history to discipline Israel. From their very beginning, in Egypt, God used the Egyptian empire to form the the people of Israel, and to unite them as a people. God drew, drew them out, or brought them out. And we also saw that as Israel was rebellious during the period of the judges, God used the Canaanites and surrounding nations to discipline Israel. 
And then towards the end of their history, God used the Assyrians to discipline the northern kingdom and then the Babylonians, the southern kingdom. So when you look at anti-Semitism and ill treatment of Jews, it's not just anti-Semitism. Part of it is God's discipline. Part of it is God's discipline. Now, from God's perspective, in terms of people that are anti-Semitic, they will come under judgment for their anti-Semitism, but God can use that anti-Semitism as his judgment for the nation of Israel, and he has done that historically. And if you question that idea, just study the book of Habakkuk, which that's kind of the main issue of that that prophet. Number seven. Also, in uh, the church age, God has made available the gospel message. And Jesus' great commission is that the church go where? To all nations and preach the gospel. So that's part of the purpose of God, of people being able to seek God. God also sends his message to the nations. So in the church age, not that it was not available before, but people could come through Israel to God, but now very definitely we have a great commission that sends believers out to the nations. So God has not rejected the the nations. They have a part in his plan. And we will see if we would study the New Testament and other parts of Scripture that the nations have a part in the kingdom. And actually, the uh, the prophets predict this. The nations are in the kingdom and specifically called Gentiles or in, in the Hebrew, goyim. And the context of some of those passages refers to the nations. So the nations will participate in the kingdom. Now, only believing people, I guess, will enter the kingdom, but they will enter from all of the nations. And we even, we see that in the New Testament in one of the parables of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25. So the idea of globalism is man's idea. God intends to even preserve nations in the millennial kingdom. So globalism is a man-made idea of organizing that comes from Babel. It's basically a Babel theology, if you will. And finally, in the eternal state, number nine here, in terms of major elements of the nations, they're glorified in eternity. In other words, they're not obliterated, they're not destroyed, which means that people of whatever background, they maintain something of their identity, even in in eternity. And in uh, Revelation chapter 21, there's, there's two verses at the end of that chapter that refer to the nations. And in that context, it's talking about the eternal state, or heaven, as we commonly refer to. And specifically, it talks about the nations. And then there's another verse in chapter 22, which is the same context. So the nations are identified even in the eternal state. So if you are Ukrainian now, you will maintain a Ukrainian identity And as a believer, all that richness of all of the ethnicity, of all backgrounds, of all peoples, 
uh, will still be evident even in the eternal state, it seems to indicate, because it identifies nations, and certainly in the millennial kingdom. Well, I mean, Irish. You will be Irish-American. You'll be both. <laughs> you will maintain your Linda identity. You will be... <laughs> You'll be just as weird in the eternal state as you are right now. <laughs> yes. And we'll all look forward. That'll be part of the joy of enjoying eternity is to have ongoing fellowship with Linda. <laughs> all right. Make sense? So, some of the results, we looked at the destruction of God's kingdom. This is what the exile does. We saw, to a large extent, the purging of idolatry. And Connie is right, it's not entirely eliminated, but in large measure, the children of Israel don't have a major problem with idolatry after the exile. And it is the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. Now, Jesus is the one that kind of coins that phrase, but we can see that concept. The idea of the times of the Gentiles is that beginning with the destruction of Israel, beginning with the exile, God now uh, allows Gentile nations, Gentile powers, to dominate the world scene. He intended that Israel would be dominant. Israel failed. Israel was destroyed in terms of a national entity. Not annihilated, because God will bring them back. In fact, that's what we'll look at later on today. But it begins this period we describe as the times of the Gentiles. Another thing that is very important as a result of the exile, as a result of that, is what Jews describe, but also others describe as the diaspora. What does that word mean? Dispersion. Dispersion of the nation of Israel throughout the world. God is going to use that because what that's going to do, and we'll, I'm going to develop this a little bit more, with Jews all over the world now, rather than just simply in Israel, now what situation do you have before us? You have Jews with the word of God, with God's revelation spread throughout the world. Now, God intended that the nation be a missionary nation and do this, and they did not. That's part of their failure. But now, in exile, God scatters them, just like he scattered the peoples at Babel. And they took the word of God with them wherever they went. And we're going to see some definite influence that Jewish people had between that time and the time of the coming of Messiah that was very instrumental in laying the groundwork for what God would do in the first century in spreading the gospel. So we have the diaspora among all the nations now. Jewish people that have a concept, a biblical worldview, that have a biblical concept of reality, and they have the revelation of God's word. And they will have an impact on the peoples that they have contact with. Not so important, but also an element that began during the, this period of time is a new kind of literature that is described as apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. And what I mean by that is apocalyptic literature is literature that is predominantly 
full of visions, a lot of imagery, a lot of angelic revelation, and sometimes angelic interpretation. Books like the book of Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar has these visions and Daniel interprets them. Daniel has some visions as well, and to some extent he interprets them. You would consider the book of Revelation in the New Testament apocalyptic in large measure as well. So Daniel, portions of Ezekiel, those kinds of passages would be apocalyptic. Zechariah, portions of Zechariah would be apocalyptic. And basically what they do is they assure believers that the kingdom of men will not ultimately triumph, even though in the times of the Gentiles, it appears that the Gentiles are now dominant and God's people are diminished. Apocalyptic literature gives a biblical perspective in that ultimately Israel will be restored, ultimately God will have the final say, God's kingdom will come, and these Gentile nations, the kingdom of man, will not triumph. God will triumph. Another purpose is that uh, the present suffering of believers will not go on forever. It's going to come to an end. The exile has a finite period of time. And even Jews in a precarious situation after the exile, they will not continue to suffer. Uh, that'll come to an end. And apocalyptic literature gives you that real positive outlook. Yep. What was the first? That was the second one about suffering will not continue. What was the first? Well, the first one is that uh, the kingdom of man will not ultimately triumph. A third purpose is that final judgment upon the world system will, in fact, come. It will be a final, ultimate judgment. These are elements of apocalyptic literature. And a sixth result of the exile. It's interesting that during this period of time, there's the rise of the major world religions and probably the rise of philosophy amongst the Greek cultures. And these are probably the result of the diaspora among all nations. Because when the word of God is proclaimed, the enemy will always counterfeit it and give substitutes to it. So during that period of time, we have the rise of major world religions. For example, Zoroastrianism. During this period of time, during the exile, this comes about. It's not coincidental. I think it's as a result of of a, a vacuum of spirituality, but it's also as a result of the satanic world giving an alternative to the Jewish concept of what God is all about, what reality is all about, what a biblical worldview is all about. Also during that period of time, we have Buddhism arises. Buddhism. We have, also have Hinduism. These all come within a very short period of time. How short? 70 years during that, during that exile. Taoism arises. Confusionism. That's probably close. (laughs) And you could include uh, legalistic Judaism, which is unbiblical and is kind of a substitute for biblical uh, Judaism, I guess you could say. This is the Judaism that Jesus had a conflict with in the first century. All of these came about during that period of time.
Blaise Pascal, French mathematician, by the way, he says the following, as his gospel, now he's referring to uh, the Bible, basically, as his gospel was to be believed by all the world, it was not only necessary that there should be prophecies to make it believed, but that, that these prophecies should exist throughout the whole world. Now he's talking about the Jews in Diaspora. That these prophecies should be known throughout the whole world. And then he conclude, concludes, in order to make make it embraced by the whole world. But instead, what man does is he rejects the truth and he substitutes a lie. And during this period of time, several major world religions come about. Mm-hmm. That's basically the Pharisaic the, the teachings of the, of the first century. Teachings of the Sadducees, of the first, uh, the, the Judaism that existed in the first century. It's not biblical. More based on tradition. Jesus confronts them. Could you, could you say that it was anything that rejected the work of Jesus Christ, grace, within the Judaic system? Yeah, I was more legalistic rather than grace oriented and biblical oriented even. Right. Yeah, there's lots of grace in the Old Testament. Another writer by the name of Robert Brow says the following. In the 6th century B.C., there was a tidal wave of revolt against priestcraft of the ancient world. Now he's talking about paganism. So there's a reaction against basically ancient paganism in this vacuum. He, He goes on. This wave shattered the power of the old religions though their cults continue to exist as backwaters for centuries, seven world religions appeared within 50 years of each other and all continue to this day. And he's referring to these that we've outlined. We'll start here and we'll complete this period of time and hopefully we might even complete the course. Who knows? (laughs) No promises. Just a reminder here, Israel's king still disciplines. Be warned. Be careful. Okay. Marcy, we want you to close for us. Gracious and merciful Father, I thank you for creating us in the many paths so that we can glorify you through our actions, through our thoughts, through our behaviors. Thank you for providing us with rain and intellect to take in all of your wonder and your fabulousness. I thank you for the commitment of each and every person that is here to come and to learn about you, for Ray, for taking time to share his knowledge. And I thank you for working through him to enlighten us in your love and your kindness and your will and your plan to us. I pray that you would be each of us as we go our separate ways. And I pray that you bring us together soon to continue the study of you, your world, your history, and that is Jesus' person. Amen.